Adam. Sam. Oxygen. Important. Yeah, oxygen, very important to us in an aeroplane. Why is it important to us? Well, because we take the most precious cargo known to man, take it up into the stratosphere. And although there's a lot of risks associated with flying at 500 miles an hour in the stratosphere, one of the biggest hazards to us is the environment itself. So at 35,000 feet, Mm -hmm. while the passengers are innocently sipping their gin and tonic, actually outside it's minus 56 degrees and the partial pressure of oxygen is extremely low. Yeah. So, um, I mean, what's your favourite altitude? Yes, 35, 37 maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Because there's a point to be made there, which is we could be between 34 and 40, let's say. There's a big, big difference between your time of useful consciousness, like the effects of a, a decompression just between a few thousand feet there. Yeah, it's almost like exponential, isn't it, when you get up to those higher Yeah, because although the partial pressure and the pressure is it's reasonably linear as you go up, it's haemoglobin that is uh, has the exponential change. Mm-hmm. So the haemoglobin, the red blood cells that carry the oxygen around the body, they're 98% saturated at sea level. When you get to 10,000 feet, they're still 90% saturated. But by the time you get to 20,000 feet, they're only 60% saturated. Right. So it's like an exponential decrease in the ability of the body to get the oxygen into the haemoglobin. And the only thing you can really compare it to um, being up at those altitudes would be like climbing Mount Everest. People, you know, Mount Everest, I think, is about 30,000 feet high. And we know That's everyone, insane. everyone that goes to the top of Everest is generally using oxygen because you just couldn't survive for yeah, very long without but, oxygen. Well, you told me some people climb it without oxygen. Well, yeah, I think they do, but I think that takes them a long time because I think they do it and they acclimatise and they take things very slowly, getting up to the top. And, base camp is like 20,000 feet or something, so yeah. they have to acclimatise there. They acclimatise there and then it's quite a slow climb, but I guess they're not then trying to fly an aeroplane at the top of True, Everest. although they've they're, got to climb a mountain. Just doing kind of hopefully simple-ish <laughs> tasks. Yeah, so I suppose um, you're saying they've got, but they've got physical... They need the oxygen for physical, for physical activity, whereas we would yeah. like to say we use it in our brain. In our brain, yeah. The brain is like really hungry organs, so use a lot of oxygen. So that's interesting because if anybody ever had the chance to experience the effects of hypoxia safely and you know volunteer to do so, it's kind of would be really useful for your career. So, I mean, how high is Kilimanjaro? I think Kilimanjaro is about twenty thousand feet, and you can like. Can't you gently walk up? That I think one? people can get up to the top of Kilimanjaro without oxygen and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you could hire a hyperbaric chamber or something because there's a list of common symptoms of hypoxia. But what is unique to you is that the order that they occur in. So they occur in a different order to every for every individual, but they will always occur in that order to you. So, you know, there could be some use in getting hypoxic or something. Uh, Recognising what you're first. Yeah, but yeah, they're... Physiology of, of oxygen, obviously, without oxygen, eventually we die. And hypoxia is lack of oxygen. There's different types of hypoxia. You know, there's toxic hypoxia, which you can get from drinking alcohol, for example. So the gin and tonic I was talking about earlier, the passengers are already slightly, ever so slightly hypoxic yep. at the cabin altitude that, w- that we're operating at. With the alcohol will affect the hemoglobin's ability to uh, saturation of oxygen, to take up oxygen. Smokers, carbon monoxide, the red blood cells prefer carbon monoxide. So they inhibit the take up of oxygen, you know, and if you've got a faulty boiler in your house, you know, that could be like fatal to people if if it's got a serious carbon monoxide leak. So that's called toxic hypoxia. But I think what we talk about today is hypoxic hypoxia, which is just the lack of the oxygen or the pressure of the oxygen in the air around you. Interestingly, I remembered like when we were flying light aircraft, there was always a carbon monoxide detector on, yeah. on, in front of you on the firewall. And then I suddenly thought, well, why don't we have that in our aircraft? But obviously we're not bleeding. We're not sat right next to the piston engine bleeding, bleeding the, the heat air, heat like in a car sort of heat exchanger situation. So maybe, but then we don't have any kind of like toxicity, it, it, like warnings in for the a flight multi, deck. a multi-million pound aircraft you'd think like one of those tiny little carbon monoxide sensors that cost probably like a pound maybe we could take one in yeah maybe i'll just take one in my flight bag 
So yeah, so okay, so we kind of touched there on uh, you mentioned cabin altitude. So okay, so airplanes flying through the stratosphere at thirty six, thirty seven thousand feet. There's not enough oxygen there for us if we were outside the aeroplane. Right. So our aircraft are pressurised to a what we call a cabin altitude. Um, so what what is a how does that work? What does what what's a cabin altitude? Yeah. So it's not sea level pressure inside why the not, aircraft. Why not? Because I think it's a compromise between the the safe, enjoyable altitude of 8,000 feet typically mm-hmm. and then how strong you need your aircraft structure to be. Yeah. So there's a differential pressure between the pressure on the outside of the aircraft, the altitude that you're flying at, and the cabin altitude that's on the inside. Mm-hmm. And so there's a structural limit which is usually about eight or nine PSI. And we have an instrument in the flight deck that just tells us what the differential pressure is right yeah. now. And so the aircraft's designed to that structural limit. And so that means that the air inside the cabin is 8,000 feet. It's like you're at the top of an 8,000 foot mountain, yeah. although the aircraft is physically in the cruise at 35,000 feet. But there's a point where you've got to you've got to go from sea level to 8,000 feet. And so the aircraft has these really clever computers that makes the art of pressurizing and depressurizing the aircraft like totally automatic. But I mean, what would they have done before automatic systems like that? Going back a little bit, they would have manually had to pressurize cabins. And even before that, then there just wouldn't have been that option. You'd have just had to fly around at sort of lower altitudes, I, I guess. Yes, yeah, so there are lots of aircraft that are unpressurized, military yeah. aircraft, and, yeah. but there's general aviation aircraft that are unpressurized. And so whatever the air pressure is, whatever the altitude is outside the aircraft, that's the altitude inside the aircraft, yeah. to state the obvious. And so you're probably only going to go up to 8,000 feet maximum. Some of these little aircraft, though, like DC-3 and stuff, you know, used to have to hop over the Alps with yeah. passengers in unpressurized. Yeah. So you'd, yeah. you'd have to get... You'd have to find maybe a lower bit of the Alps, and but it's yeah, going to have to be like ten or twelve thousand feet, I guess. Yeah, of like, course. Which is fine for most people. And at eight thousand feet, if you're just sat there drinking your gin and tonic, you probably wouldn't notice much. But have you ever done any exercise? Well, no, not really. But I, I did fly with a captain once who liked to do some like press ups in the back of the flight deck. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, so if you're a passenger sitting, you're not really physically exerting yourself or mentally exerting yourself, then 8,000 feet is fine. But yeah, as soon as you start to exert yourself, particularly physically, it does have an effect. You notice, I notice sometimes cabin crew moan that they sort of feel a little bit unwell. Not unwell, but just... And it's generally because they're up and they're moving and they're working and they're lifting and carrying and pushing trolleys and they're physically exerting themselves yeah, at, they, eight, at, at the top of an 8,000 foot mountain in effect. Yeah, so that's going to be really noticeable to them. Yeah. Because those ones with step counters, like cabin crew, know that they do like miles of walking on a flight. Yeah. yeah. But like you say, they're lifting and walking at 8,000 foot. Yeah. It's the cardiovascular system in the heart that feels the effects of yeah. hypoxia first. So although the symptoms might be from the nervous system, you know, it's like your eyes and um, what else? The nervous system things are the things that are listed on the symptom first. Actually, your heart. So it's all right if you're sat there, but yeah, if you're going to do some press ups, you probably won't do as many as you do on the ground because once you start asking the heart to pump everything around, just being at eight thousand feet where the saturation of the hemoglobin is ninety percent rather than ninety eight, you'll actually start to notice that. So, what's the most common? emergency non-normal situation that we that, that we have or any pilot has well yeah typically a medical emergency yeah, yeah. so any problems that you've got that you yeah. may or may not know about if i take you up to eight thousand feet cabin altitude you'll soon find out about it's going to be amplified isn't it yeah, yeah. they're yeah. all exaggerated yeah. i mean often have a medical emergency you might divert okay good it's all worked out well we've got the person off and then you know in the post-flight review you find out that passenger was 98 they had one lung that lung remaining had pneumonia in it. And you yeah. think, well, they're not going to cope very well at yeah, 8,000 yeah, yeah, feet. Yeah, exactly. And it's, yeah, cardiovas- any cardiovascular problems that you might have, especially since they're the first, that's the first system perhaps to be affected by uh, hypoxia are going to show up. And pilots have, uh, you know, a strict screening and cardiovascular system. Yeah. Um, probably for that reason, I guess. Yeah. It's kind of a bit like um, pregnancy and limits on how many weeks you can be pregnant and then you're not allowed to fly anymore. I don't think it's because like you're so close to giving birth 
that like they couldn't cope with a birth on a flight, although it wouldn't be ideal. It's more to do with this kind of stresses and strains on the body of being late in the pregnancy process. Yeah. The, the extra oxygen, physical exertion, um, you know, your heart is demanding more. So I think that's more why they have the limits on pregnant women flying rather than the fact that they're so close to, to their due date. It's, it's, it's all these things that being at 8,000 feet, in effect, cabin altitude, is going to do to the human body that it wouldn't do at sea level. So I know it's um, a bit stupid thing to say, right? But, you know, I'm always saying that the best thing about the job and the worst or the worst thing about the job is whoever you're working with. So they, they either makes or breaks the job. More often than not, it's the best thing about the job, the person that you sat next to for eight hours. And they're like a total stranger and you might never even see them again, you know, depending on y- your airline. But you end up having quite deep conversations that you wouldn't have necessarily with somebody that you just met yeah and i yeah. do wonder if slightly it's because we're slightly drunk like slightly hypoxic, slightly hypoxic. <laughs> do we yeah. sort of like slip into you know more yeah maybe like, easier well it's funny it's funny you say that because yeah being hypoxic or slightly hypoxic is similar to the effects of being drunk you know and um so yeah maybe you know everybody knows that when they have a drink in the pub they start to become a little bit more loose-lipped and yeah, maybe, maybe there's, maybe you've got something there. Maybe you're onto something. I don't know. But we should be used to it because we're doing yeah. it all the time. So you think our physiology would sort of acclimatize, not literally to it. So let's talk about when things go wrong then. Yeah. So we've got this pressurized aircraft, but what if your cabin altitude starts to climb? So very, very briefly, the cabin pressurization system, it, it sucks air in from the outside pressurizes it pumps it into the cabin and then the most aircrafts have what's called like an outflow valve which opens cracks open a tiny bit to just allow a little bit of air to seep out and it just keeps the so it's not a closed cylinder no it's not completely closed it's kind of it almost flows through and keeps the cabin altitude at a constant or climbing or descending depending on on what you're doing so obviously like old airplanes they have other like little areas where air can seep out as well so through door seals or um, cargo door seals or anything really, you know, weak spots basically where, where air can leak out. So there's, there's probably two or three reasons why cabin altitude, your cabin pressurization system might fail and the cabin altitude would start to rise. It could be a sort of slow decompression, like a small leak, but actually the system can't keep up with holding that cabin pressure. It could be some sort of explosive decompression. So like um, there's been accidents before where like a, you know, a door's blown off or a hole in the air, a big hole in the aeroplane has caused like a rapid decompression, or it could be a failure of the pressurization system itself failing to, so let, to let's pressurize. split it up like that then. So there's slow decompressions and rapid decompressions, yep. slow decompressions then. Yeah. The pressurization system fails. Yeah. And it's a complicated system because you're using uh, bleed air from the engines to two separate systems normally and then forcing air through this cylinder. And then the outflow valve at the back, quite easy to spot on an aircraft and yeah. it'll always be open on the ground Yeah. because on the ground, you always want there to be no differential pressure. Otherwise mm. you wouldn't be able to open the doors. Yeah. So the aircraft quite cleverly knows when it's on the ground, it must be fully open and it must quickly dump any pressure that it's got left inside. But I did once have a cabin crew very rightfully and cleverly who had been flying a while point out that there was a hole open in in an aircraft i don't think it was ours and she pointed at the outflow valve which is a giant hole in the aircraft yeah, yeah yeah quite right of her to like point out something if she thought it was unusual but you can see them at the back right of the aircraft seem to always be there yeah, it seems always on all aircraft types yeah and um the sort of things that you want closed in a ditching situation i guess but yeah. anyway so it's a complicated pressurization system you could have a failure of that system. I've, on a functional check flight, took an empty aircraft up to cruise and depressurized it mm-hmm. as part of the check. And we put our oxygen masks on and we see what happens to the cabin oxygen system and so on. But you also check the leak rate of yep. the aircraft, that it's an acceptable level. Yeah. But the older the aircraft, the more little leaks you'll have somewhere in the aircraft. So there's the outflow valve and there's just generally little leaks little around. Leaks. So if your pressurization system fails, the outflow mm. valve cleverly, hopefully, will close as quickly as it can to seal you as, in. As much pressure yeah. as it can, yeah, yeah. But the aircraft's going to leak out from yeah. all sorts of places and yeah. you would assume a new aircraft 
would have the least amount of leaks, basically. So I actually had this for real uh, once. So those bleed air systems that you talk about that that bring the air in from the outside. So both of those failed on on our aircraft. Uh, So we were climbing about 25,000 feet outside. Cabin pressure inside probably at that stage would have been about six or 7,000 feet and climbing up towards 8,000. And yeah, so we had no new air coming into the aircraft. So the outflow valve closed and basically then, yeah, the cabin altitude started to rise, even though we started to descend, basically through the leaks, you know. And I recall looking at it at one point and the cabin altitude was climbing at about a thousand feet a minute. So from 7,000, we knew we had about three minutes before it would get above 10,000 feet and start setting off alarms in, in the flight deck. And so our, we did a, not I wouldn't call emergency descent, but we did a fairly rapid descent from 25,000 feet. And we just got down to below 10,000 feet as the cabin altitude was at about 9,800, something like that, where we e- equalised basically. And it just, just avoided setting the, setting the warning off. So what... Uh, was the cause of all this? Uh, so this was a this was actually a dual bleed failure. So there's a bleed system on each engine, and by pure bad luck, both of them failed. One just after takeoff, and we were sort of dealing with that fault as we were climbing up when the second one failed at twenty five thousand feet. And I guess although that sounds like really unlucky. What was happening was your aircraft was putting a lot of demand on the one remaining system, exactly, exactly, which then caused that to fail. Yeah, exactly. So you got down to 10,000. So why 10,000? Well, that's, that's the kind of accepted altitude that you know, is breathable and you've got useful consciousness. Um, but also that's what the aircraft sort of trigger is for um, setting off the alarms to tell you that you're going above 10,000 feet cabin altitude. I think it's actually 9,800. I think it is actually. I think which it's, is really annoying. So, so what I remember is it, it was... It was it was the actual cabin altitude was flashing like 9,700 or whatever it was. So it was giving me, it was giving us the advisory that it's, you know, you're getting very close here basically. But yeah, I think, I think it's 9,880 or something like that okay. is, is where the warning actually goes off. The so 10,000 is higher than the 8,000 we're normally used to flying at. So vulnerable people with health conditions or elderly people might not do that well at 10,000, but they'll probably survive while you sort out the problem. Yeah. But let's let's think about this. So you needed to do not an emergency descent. You decided you'd try and beat the cabin altitude yeah, down, so try yeah, and get down yeah. to ten thousand before it went above ten thousand. Exactly. But what you know, why couldn't you just descend to three thousand? Well, because of where it was. So as this was an old airline I used to work for, we were in Malaga in the south of Spain. So not the worst for terrain, but there's some fairly big old hills around Malaga and Granada. Uh, so our MSA, our minimum safe altitude, was actually above 10,000 feet from where we are. So we could start off our descent quite quickly, but then we needed to get our charts out and just figure out exactly where we are and exact, get to somewhere that we knew was safe to go below 10,000 okay. feet so we wouldn't hit the mountain. That'd be a terrible shame to have uh, you know saved everybody from hypoxia and death, but then ploughed into a mountain. Well, yeah, but I mean, why? that is one of the reasons to climb the aircraft, like we said about going over the Alps. And so, yeah, terrain's always in the way, isn't it? And weather and traffic and so on yeah, can yeah. stop you making a quick descent what about the cabin crew what happened with them so not a huge amount they called us first actually so as we were starting the descent they obviously noticed hey we're supposed to be climbing back towards manchester now why are we descending back towards the ground uh, so i think they called us first um and we briefly just explained what the issue was however they had no indication in the cabin that there was a problem with the oxygen because the cabin oxygen masks don't drop down till actually 14,000 feet cabin altitude. So actually we never got anywhere near that. We never triggered the masks in the cabin. They were only aware of a descent, basically. So that's interesting. Let's come back to that then. Cabin crews procedures, because they're very involved in emergency descents. Mm. They're part of the procedure. So you had a slow decompression. Yeah, exactly. You said that there was such things as a rapid decompression. Yeah. There's some quite, like you alluded to, dramatic accidents which began with rapid decompressions. The one I can think of is where there's that 737 with the whole top of the aircraft missing. That was like in uh, Hawaii, wasn't it? Aloha. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, that was just crazy. Yeah. Aloha 1988. 
unfortunately, well, the crew did really well, but one person died, which was one of the cabin crew who was stood up when the yeah. decompression happened. And was it metal fatigue, I think? And there I think so, yeah. A hole of some size opened up in the aircraft and then the cabin crew, along with probably loads of debris, got sucked towards that hole and then makes the hole the, the a lot impact, bigger. The impact of that actually made the hole bigger, yeah, exactly. Yeah, following that, cabin crew were trained and just generally became aware that if you hear a loud bang, that you drop to the floor and hold on to something. Yeah. Even in that Sioux City podcast we did, that's what one of the crew did when the engine failed, was instinctively just hit the floor yep. because that was cabin crew that died in that accident. But this, the picture of that aircraft is amazing, the Aloha. Yep. You've got the captain who got partially sucked out of the aircraft, British Airways, 1990 yep. out of Gatwick, I think. Yeah, Gatwick, and they diverted into Southampton, I think. Ah, is that right? Yeah. 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 So it's an amazing story behind that, but they'd basically not put the right bolts in the windscreen and so that that blew out and so they had an explosive decompression right in front of the captain yeah he was half sucked out and we definitely maybe we should look at that another time or yeah something. that's probably a good accident to look at in the whole podcast really there's even uh, i think a Qantas flight where the oxygen cylinder that provides emergency oxygen to the flight deck blew up and caused wow. an explosive decompression wow the coke can analogy is imagine a can of coke that you shake up to you know, annoy you really, mate. really violently yeah. you, get, you want a drink yeah and you shake it up that- and- that, yeah, 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 yeah. Open this. Yeah. That that Coke can is basically what an aeroplane is flying through the air. It's like highly pressurized and the differential pressure between the pressure inside that Coke can versus outside yeah. in normal air is like huge. So and if it, you were to pop a hole in that Coke can, i.e. either open the lid or just stab a, what you used to do in school, stab a compass in it or a or, what you did. or, or a What pen. about those Americans on videos now that like bite into it or something? I don't know. I'm to drink. Yeah, maybe. To yeah. chug. Yeah, but as soon as you like pop a hole in that, it, everything's just going to fire out of it because it's trying to equalise the pressure, basically. But and it is a good analogy because it's a yeah, yeah, yeah. thin sheet thin of aluminium. Tube. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's basically the fuselage. Yeah. But the physiological effects then of being instantaneously taken from 8,000 feet cabin altitude to the outside because how long is it going to take like like seconds yeah like so as opposed seconds. to the gradual decompression yeah. we're talking about in yeah. one or two seconds or something this yeah. amazing change in air pressure so what are the physiological effects well uh there's one way i could put it which is how, what a uh, training captain once said to you and me on our mcc course right i think he said something along the lines of it's like having two red hot pokers stuck in your eye two red hot pokers stuck up your nose and one red hot poker stuck like somewhere else where you wouldn't really want it. Yeah. Uh, and that's how he described his experience <laughs> of when he had an explosive decompression. So he's saying the pain, the pain from those orifices. Yeah. Yeah. You know, is, is, is that intense? Cause I suppose your body's full of gas. Yeah. So it just wants to leak out. It just wants to yeah. get out. So if you've it? been holding in politely something, <laughs> yeah, it's coming straight out. Yeah. And unfortunately gas is going to leak out through, what did you say? Your eyes and your ears. He said eyes and no, but he said the pain from like your eyes. Right. Okay. Um, I guess there's. So how, what's that going to do if you're trying to fly the aircraft? Uh, it's going to be crazy, isn't it? It's going to be yeah, insane. I mean, the crew often tell you like it's a really unhealthy job and you don't know what they're into and they'll point at their water bottles that you've taken from sea level pressure and then you've had a drink and close the lid go up to 8,000 feet and will expand and then as you start to descend will like contract and say what must be happening just gently sector after sector to your organs and stuff like I don't know it's probably not great for you but it seems to be all right but if you have an explosive decompression (laughs) then you know that's that's pretty you know, what about, didn't you take your girlfriend to the dentist and or yeah. explained aerodontalgia yeah. to her? Yeah, so uh, she always used to get a pain um, in her teeth when she used to fly. And um, I think it was the dentist that, when she explained it, the dentist was like, oh yeah, that's aerodontalgia. And basically where she'd had a filling and there was a tiny little sort of gap underneath the filling, whenever she went flying in an aeroplane, that air that was trapped in that tooth was still at kind of sea level pressure. And so like the fizzy coat cannon allergy, so really high pressure air inside her tooth. Yeah. Basically wanting, trying to escape and get out. Um, That's nasty. Yeah. And she used to get really bad pain in her teeth. Yeah. So you can see like some of the effects of the rapid decompression are going to be, uh, I mean, we have the dangerous part of our dangerous goods 
uh, list of things we can and can't accept on the aircraft. Obviously, certain pressurized things we can't put on the aircraft. Like, you know, or like Ross from Friends on that episode, he's nicked all the shampoo from his hotel. And then when he gets back home, it's all exploded in his, yeah, he's had a major case. shampoo explosion in his suitcase and he's annoyed. And that happens. Or like bags of crisps. Crisps always explode in, in the flight deck, yeah. which causes like yeah. minor alarm. Um, you know how a lot of pilots have a little piece of paper which they write like the flight number on and the time of arrival and useful yeah. information. Well, I don't do that. People will think I'm a bit weird because I'm like the only person who doesn't stick like this piece of paper to the instrument panel. But I always think like, you've written the MSA on there, great. But as soon as you have an explosive decompression, that's, that's that piece of paper, it's going, it's that's the first thing out of the window. Like, Also, you get, you know, when you come, you do a little bit of plane spot and you see an aircraft coming into land and you have that low pressure area above the wing and you get this beautiful instantaneous fog, fog that appears yeah, yeah, yeah. and disappears due to the pressure difference. Well, I believe the same in the flight deck or in the aircraft, when you have a rapid decompression, you can have this sudden fog, fog yeah, yeah. Uh, appear and even the instruments can have frost appear on them. Yeah. So I don't know, what do you reckon the first few seconds of an explosive I, I decompression? See, I, yeah, I think it's just crazy. It must be crazy. It, it would be, be chaos. And so you've got memory items to apply in that moment. Yeah. And you've got, What's your time of usual consciousness at 40,000 feet? Like? It's about 10 seconds, 12 seconds, something like yeah. that. So, you've, so got- you've got 12 or 10 seconds to put your mask on. Yeah. Otherwise it's game over. Yeah. You'll still be conscious, but the chance but, of you doing the right thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. you become like so, so drunk that you just couldn't function. Basically, that's the, that's kind of the effect of the hypoxia that quickly. So that's like the only thing anybody ever needs to remember about oxygen. I don't care about anything else. The only thing any pilot needs to remember is that Right next to you, you've got this uh, flight deck oxygen system available to you and you can just don your mask at any time and you'll be protected. Yes, the rest of the cabin might be in chaos and the passengers need to get their oxygen. You're going to have to descend the aircraft, but that can all happen in a slow, calm time. If you don't have your oxygen mask on, it's game over. It's like the only thing you need to remember, Mm. but you can always take it off, can't you? Yeah. So if you ever put it on, you know, what's the saying? You, 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 if there's any doubt, there is no doubt. If you think that there might be some kind of decompression situation happening, maybe you've noticed something with your colleague or you, you just lost SA, yep. just put your oxygen mask on, right? Yep. You've probably never seen anybody do it, but I'm just saying somehow get that ingrained in your mind that no one's going to tell you off for doing that. It's a slight tangent, but yeah, if pilot incapacitation, if, if, yeah. You, if your colleague becomes incapacitated, even though it might not be obvious or there's nothing telling you it's a depressurization or, or something to do with oxygen, you, one of my first thoughts would be, do I need to be on oxygen? Is it... Is, is it, it the first thing on the checklist? Consider no, oxygen? I don't think so, no. Oh, it's a really good point. But it's something... I don't think it's on the checklist. Yeah, um, because you don't know why they've become incapacitated. Exactly. So it could be like a loosely related to hypoxia, like toxic hypoxia. Yeah, it could yeah. be a fumes event yeah, that yeah. it's not affected you miraculously, you know. Yeah. Different people have... The effects of hypoxia happen in different order for different people and also different ages and so on. Yep. So if you're the lucky one that gets to spot their colleague having incapacitation, then yeah, you should definitely think of the mask and you can always take it off is what I'm saying. So you might decide, okay, we're actually safe. And you know, yeah, so. it's definitely not pressurization. So take my mask off. Yeah. Yeah. Time of useful consciousness. There's tables. It's going to vary person to person and, and so on, but you just need to be aware of that exponential decrease and the altitudes that we operate airliners at it's incredibly low, the time of useful consciousness. So, uh, right, Sam, so I'm going to play you some piece of audio. Okay. We're just going to listen to it. Okay. And we'll talk about it after, yeah? I don't know anything about this. Okay. okay. Right, okay. Something a bit different. Sounds interesting. 1266, uh, Cleveland out of here. 1266, uh, Roger, you're keen, you're making it's uh, staying on there. Uh, frequently, so uh, please be careful. Sir, he's declaring an emergency with his flight controls. Affirmative. Yes, sir, he said affirmative on that. All right, uh, Coletta 66, uh, Roger, uh, what, what are your intentions? Sir, he's looking for vectors. 
All right, Class 66, understand an emergency. You want to vector to Cincinnati, is that correct? Uh, Cloud of 66, uh, are you able? Uh, are you able to maintain altitude? Uh, what what uh, what assistance can I give you other than that vector? amazing i've never heard that before um that's incredible so what was happening well obviously it was hypoxia um but i've never when when did you get to that um well i kind of had an idea that we were talking about oxygen that maybe that's why you you'd played it but i've never heard or seen hypoxia in action really yeah and he just sounded drunk basically he's like a drunk guy yeah um what's your favorite line uh <laughs> Everything's a okay. Yeah, <laughs> apart, unable, apart from like the fact that you can't find to control heading altitude. Uh, and what was interesting is that the the second pilot came back towards the end there, so you, you could assume that he was maybe like unconscious, possibly, or just completely out of it, unable to key unable the mic to and... like press the microphone or whatever. Yeah, but then they both come back towards the end, and they just sound like normal. So let's let's talk about what happened briefly. So. Um, it's a little charter company called Kalita. The flight's Kalita 66 and it's 2008 and it's a Learjet 25. 
the aircraft is gradually, slowly depressurized, not rapid decompression. It's a slow decompression. The pilots have become hypoxic, and one of them is talking on air traffic control, is saying that they've got a problem with their flight controls. In the face of other aircraft trying to relay and saying he says he's got a problem with his flight controls, after a while, one of the air traffic controllers works out that they think he's hypoxic. Yeah. And so they managed to convince him to descend. Yeah. And as they descend into air with a higher pressure of oxygen, the effects of hypoxia on seemingly both of them, but one of them first, just instantaneously wear off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that contributed to saving them is the autopilot was disconnected. And so they were able to sort of just tell him to do a descent and he just kind of just, went for just it. went for it, yeah, yeah. Like a lot of accidents, thanks, unfortunately, to a, a, a serious accident with loss of life, many more people are able to you know have their lives saved because of what we learn and this is a good example of that because it was the same aircraft Learjet 25 sadly an accident in 1999 and where the pilots were hypoxic and the aircraft crashed it was actually with the famous US Open champion Payne Stewart on board and from that the air traffic controller had had some kind of training or awareness about hypoxic pilots and picking up the symptoms so the two air traffic controllers there, the one you can hear, which is Marvin Marvin McCombs and Stephanie Bevins, were all, got got awarded for their for saving yeah. the saving a serious accident by recognizing the the signs of hypoxia. But what a awesome, you it's know, a, that's a really like, powerful, bit of RT. really powerful example. Of that, like I said, I've never heard that before. That is, um, yeah, that's incredible. So. Talk to me about an emergency descent. What What's the outline of that? Yeah, so an emergency descent. So this is going to be following one of these rapid decompressions that we've been talking about. Um, Does it have to be? Could, uh, could be a, after... Can you do an emergency descent at any time, I guess? Uh, well, yeah, I guess so, yeah. It's, there's no reason why you couldn't, but it would typically be... It'd be if the cabin altitude is above, is above 10, 10 or is uncontrollable. Or, or uncontrollable, yeah, yeah. So time of useful consciousness, we talked about very small. So first action, protect yourself, get your oxygen mask on. And then the next actions really are about descending the aircraft into richer air, oxygen richer air. So starting a descent uh, and helping to speed that descent along with maybe some extra drag, speed brakes, or possibly the landing gear, depending on limitations, uh, speeding up if possible, if it's not such a big structural damage so just basically getting the aircraft down as quickly as possible however there are it's not just as simple as as you said earlier descending to 3,000 feet there's all sorts of things to consider as well as controlling the emergency descent and everything that's going on within the airplane you've got to be aware of what's outside the airplane and where you're descending to and where what sort of airspace you're over who what other aircraft might be around what terrain might be around yeah uh, so we always that sort of thing Fly, navigate, communicate. So the first actions of the uh, emergency descent are memory items. Mm -hmm. And the very first action, almost, I want to say it should be an instinct, not a memory item, to put your oxygen mask on. And then compose yourself to start the emergency descent, which is a two-crew thing. Then you've got navigate, so there's going to be weather, terrain, other aircraft, Mm -hmm. and communicate to air traffic control that you're doing this descent through all of their layers of airspace. And what kind of rate of descent might we... I think probably like if everything was in your favour, could probably get up to sort of six thousand feet a minute, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Which is which is a which nice is, yeah. quick rate of descent, but yeah. you know, there's occasions where I exceed five thousand feet per minute in, in normal. A normal descent. Yeah, yeah. yeah maybe you could get more. Yeah. So you're looking. No, at, I mean, I'm not saying you necessarily get more, but but yeah, the aircraft's capable, easily capable of doing a six thousand feet per minute. Six thousand feet a minute from thirty-six thousand feet. So it would take you six minutes to get to sea level, basically. Okay. So maybe sort of four or five minutes to get to flight level 100. So you talk about masks then. You were talking about cabin mm. oxygen systems earlier on. Yep. That they're very different to what the flight deck have. Yes. How does the cabin oxygen, emergency oxygen supply work? Yeah, so the cabin oxygen masks that drop down from, from overhead, they are, depending on aircraft type, would be triggered at a different point. But on our aircraft, uh, it's about 14,000 feet but they're not pure oxygen. They're like a, it's like a chemical, chemical reaction basically, which creates oxygen into their oxygen. Yeah, like the, it's the, like the, a, you, when you pull the mask towards you, which starts, is the first yeah. thing in the safety video, that starts the chemical. You pull a reaction. pin out, which yeah. starts these two solid chemicals yeah. combining. One of the byproducts is oxygen, yeah. which is what you want. 
The other one is heat. Yeah. So I think it gets quite hot. It gets really hot. Yeah, 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 I've heard that. But importantly, what you were saying is that those masks will fall down Mm -hmm. of their own accord. That system is independent if the cabin altitude goes above 14,000 feet feet. on most fleets, right? Mm -hmm. We can manually put them down. Mm -hmm. Or if you do a really hard landing, a couple of them might fall down. down. Yeah, yeah. Because they are, you know, they're just sort of ledged there, ready to drop. Um, But they should drop automatically when the cabin altitude is, let's say, 14,000 feet or above. What are the cabin crew going to do when all of a sudden the masks drop? So when the masks drop, that should be the first sign to them that something's wrong with the oxygen system. So if they aren't feeling the aircraft descending at that point, then there's a possibility that the flight crew are not aware of a, of a problem. So they would probably want to protect themselves, first of all, get themselves onto some oxygen, and then contact the flight crew to see what's going on, basically. They'd have to give the flight crew a little bit of a chance to get their own oxygen on and start a descent uh, typically probably a minute 30 seconds a minute or so maybe a little bit more but if they're not if they're noticing that the aircraft's not descending after 90 seconds or so i think they would then be getting on to contact them yeah so it'd be laid down in their manual specifically and it's actually mandated by your aviation agency probably worldwide that they have to be part of this procedure so if yeah. they see the mask come down they have the same mask as the passengers it's the same one that they do in the demo we pull they pull them towards us they have them in the toilets in the galley with the little bag yeah because this is a chemical reaction it just starts producing oxygen Mm -hmm. so if you're not breathing it it just fills up in the little bag that's the whole bag may not inflate thing and then they're gonna be part of our procedure i.e they're gonna come and check that we are alive Mm -hmm. or aware of the situation excuse me if we haven't started a descent and probably made a pa saying everybody get on oxygen. Yeah. Okay, so in the flight deck, very different system, which we've talked a little bit about. Yep. But that's oxygen supplied under positive pressure. So when you breathe in, that's when the oxygen is supplied to you. Yeah. Just rewinding slightly, the cabin system, how long does that last? They reckon about 15 minutes, don't they? Yeah. Uh, A minimum of 12, is it? Minimum of 12. but On short haul? Yeah, typically about Because what's the difference on long haul? Long haul, you might not be able to get down quite so fast, depending on where you are. If you, there are places in the world where the mountains are so, the terrain is so high that you might actually be at intermediate levels for a long time, escape routes and uh, drift down procedures and things yeah, like so that. Yeah, so I guess it's not a short haul, long haul thing. It's If you're in Europe, it's a short haul thing. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, Central Asia and Greenland, there isn't anywhere for you to be able to get to 10,000 feet within 12 or 15 minutes. Yeah. So you have to have a cabin system that can supply oxygen to the passengers while you first probably get down to like 20,000 feet, fly some complicated route called an oxygen escape route mm-hmm. that's laid out in a chart down a valley to eventually get to the closest place where you can then descend down to 10,000 feet before the cabin oxygen system runs out. So, sorry, going back to the flight deck oxygen system, that's yeah. totally different. Yeah. And depending on what setting you have on your on your mask, because it's designed to provide positive supply of oxygen, either at 100% or mixed. Yeah. And depending on what you set, like depends how long it lasts and how many people are in the flight deck and so on. Because we also use it, like we've already said, in fumes and smoke situations, yep. not just for decompressions. And don't forget, your pre-flight checks are pretty important. Remember in British Airways 09, is that the, we've already done it in a podcast, the Jakarta, the Jakarta well, volcanic yeah. all, ash. All four engines failed. Yeah, so they started filling up with kind of sulfur smoke. So they decided to put oxygen on. The first officer put his mask on and the hose wasn't even connected. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. So they decided to do a descent to um, get him some outside air. Breathable air, Some yeah. breathable air, which coincidentally happened to save them. But anyway, just one more oxygen system therapeutic oxygen what's that most airlines will carry or all airlines probably will carry some therapeutic oxygen and so that's to be used for in-flight contingencies you know somebody falls ill in flight i think people can pre-order it as well possibly if you've got a medical condition you can have it pre-ordered through your doctor that you're going to use the onboard therapeutic oxygen to help you through the flight yeah therapeutic so it as the title suggests i guess it's for medical yeah reasons either pre-existing or you know things that are coming flight but can be used in decompressions yeah how would you use that if you were because it's portable basically so they can use it to move about so it'd just be an oxygen cylinder with a mask attached to it 
And so once they've maybe got over the initial rapid decompression or whatever that might have been, where they've jumped onto a, one of the uh, passenger oxygen masks, they can actually, they always talk about how they would like sort of monkey swing yeah. between mask to mask to mask until they, that- they got to the galley and were able to put on a portable oxygen bottle and because they're not nicking the passenger ones there no. should be a spare one in each row there's, i think i think normally so if there's a row of three row three four. four masks normally right. yeah for like inf- to count for infants and children and stuff yeah camera crew got to come in potentially in a depressurized aircraft to check we're okay and so they would do that on the therapeutic oxygen they can change the flow rate and then last a while and you've always got a load of those bottles on board which part of the mel yeah there's yeah there's something like cabin crew number of cabin crew plus three or something oxygen bottles so yeah yeah quite a lot so fit your own mask before helping somebody else advice for life life. yeah (laughs) because uh you know you're useless to anybody um you never they're never going to get their oxygen so going back to protect yourself first yeah yeah. always put your mask on i think we're leading towards an obvious accident Um, 2005 2005 august 2005 uh helios uh 522 is uh, what we're going to talk about and um, so many lessons learned from these accidents. Yeah, well, look uh, at that Kalita. Kalita, yeah, exactly. Um, and so by studying these accidents that shouldn't have happened, we can prevent them from happening again. Definitely a lot learned from this one. So this flight, this aircraft was 737. Was it going from Larnaca in Cyprus yeah. to Athens, I think? It's going to go to Prague. Yeah. But it's stopping but it's in Athens. Stopping in Athens. Not yeah. the longest flights then. No, for no. For the crew to do, a couple of hours. The aircraft had had some previous pressurization problems, which had been looked at by the engineers. But somehow, whether intentionally or, or by mistake, I, I don't have it in my notes here, he'd left it in manual mode. That was my understanding. So uh, rather than this automatic pressurization system, it had been left in the manual mode, which means that the pilots would have been required yeah. to control the pressurization themselves. So just to be clear, the aircraft handles its own pressurization, but if you've got it, if you've got a switch set to manual, mm-hmm. you're telling the aircraft, don't, I will control the outflow valve. Yeah. So the aircraft, you do won't, the aircraft yeah. won't pressurize at all or won't change its settings at all. So it had, um, it had a history of potential pressurization problems and door seals. Mm. So how common is a door seal issue? Yeah, that does, that happens quite a lot. You quite often get, I, I find cabin crew will call and say, oh, there's a whistling noise by the door. And you go out and yeah, sure enough, it sounds like a, a seal gone possibly on the door. Because these doors get open and closed all the yeah. time and then there's all crap on the floor and the cleaners are coming in and out. And yeah. they are really well-designed doors. And on Boeings, aren't they all plug doors that yeah, kind of go so. in and then plug, but not yeah. on Airbus. But no. there is a rubber seal basically at some mm. point, like you would expect to seal the door. And if there's something caught in there or the seal's yeah. deteriorated, Imagine the differential pressure is quite high. So yeah. you suddenly get this horrible high pitch squealing where yeah. the air is leaving. But that's okay because, as we said, it's not a closed cylinder, but it's something that needs looking at. So yeah. it definitely had some of these issues, if not other issues, with the pressurization system. Yep. And so there was a British engineer stationed in Cyprus. Mm-hmm. Nice, cushy job for him. Aircraft comes in, does a check on it, you know, daily, nightly sort of check, and looks at any problems. So while the aircraft had been sat there overnight, He's ran some kind of authorised procedure by the book, probably to pressurise the aircraft on the ground and then go and look for leaks in the way that Boeing have exactly told him to do that. Now, whether or not he didn't follow the last line of the procedure, if you like, I don't know. I never got to the bottom of, but I think it's established that that engineer did leave the switch in manual. Yeah. You would assume the procedure, the last line of the procedure was set it back to auto. Mm-hmm. But okay, so the engineers left it there in manual and then these two flight crew have arrived to pick up the aircraft and take it from uh, Larnaca to Athens. Yep. So I think the cockpit setup in a Boeing is that both pilots, whether you're PF or PM, have certain systems, overhead panels and switches are your responsibility. And on that day, okay, it happened to be the FO who would have gone through the pressurization panel. Mm. But it's like a rotary switch. Yeah. It's like a... Um, trying to describe this it's not a button no it's like a like a cooker like right. a knob on a cooker right right okay so it probably have like auto auto two and manual yeah. and it was in manual so i don't know how many times would the fo have seen it in manual yeah well probably never but how easy would it be to spot i, I don't think it'd be that's a really interesting 
human, human factors, factors yeah. problem. I mean, in an Airbus, you have this lights off philosophy, which is really clever, which is if the overhead panel is set up in a, a normal configuration, then there's just no lights. There's no lights, yeah. But if you've left one of them off by mistake, then you'll see it straight away because yeah. there's suddenly a bright light on. But this wasn't the case here. So expecting a human to repeat the same action for however many thousand flights they'll do in their career and even though 999 times out of a thousand that switch will be where it should be in auto your brain is going to get is doesn't want to check it because it's like why would i you know it's not your conscious mind your unconscious mind is trying to save energy and i don't want to check that switch so in on one hand you might it might stand out a mile off because you're like hold on that switch is definitely in the wrong position because i've seen it 999 times in the right position but my point being that also if you don't have the rigor of looking and what's the saying like looking and really like like, checking what you're looking at checking the output basically yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah. so they took off with the aircraft pressurization system manual so what happens next so they started to climb basically and the cabin altitude was basically the same as the outside altitude and Passing 12,000 feet, so it must be slightly different on the Boeing. They got the first alarm went off saying, problem here, the cabin altitude's at 12,000 feet. Uh, This is the first and probably the most unbelievable like Swiss cheese element to it was that that alarm was absolutely identical to another alarm, which is a takeoff warning config alarm. And the crew just assumed that it was a spurious. That's what an alarm they might have heard a few times before, possibly in the simulator or. I don't know um, if it's even one they would do every day, like to check. Yeah, d- yeah, possibly. They'll have heard it a lot. And Boeing, it's, it's actually like a horn. Yeah. The exact noise of that horn is for two separate, totally separate things. Totally separate things. But so, you would assume, I guess the designer of the aircraft thought, well, if it goes off at 12,000 feet, it's not a takeoff config. Yeah. yeah. The mind doesn't really work the like that. mind doesn't work like that. No, no. So. They assumed, because they'd heard it before as a takeoff warning config, that it was a spurious takeoff warning config. But and, you're uh, saying that's going off at 12,000 feet. So yeah. what have we learned about oxygen? Yeah, so already possibly they are slightly... Potentially. Potentially in the early stages of... Very early stages and of And they're climbing at what, 2,000 feet a minute? Yeah, so it's getting worse. So yes, yeah, so they, they kept climbing and then they eventually spoke to engineering and it was actually the engineer that had done the overnight work on the aircraft that they spoke to in So uh, how, do in they, how do they call the engineer? So they'd be calling him on like uh, what we call box two, like VHF channel two. Because we so, do that all the time. Like yeah, talk if to, we're within VHF range, yeah, talk you to call engineer. the engineers and they'll help yeah, you out yeah. if you've got a little problem. Um, I guess if you've got a sat phone, you, know, you yeah. can do that anywhere in the world. So they called the engineer who actually, on the copy voice recorder, he actually asked them to check the cabin pressure mode whether it was in manual but um the report sort of said that hypoxia had already set in and the captain basically disregarded that question and um, asked about something else because what it was the avionics computers also sit in the pressurized aircraft and if the computers are in air which is unpressurized the density of the air is obviously much lower and so you need these massive fans constantly cooling these really old computers, basically in the avionics bay. And they were the first things to sound the alarm, which is like they had an avionics heating problem Yeah, because they're not getting enough air to cool them down. So the captain was on the radio to the engineer saying, I've got an avionics cooling problem. Yeah, And where are my CBs for the avionics cooling? Okay. And the engineer really cleverly realized that he may be confused and that's why I was advocating for him to check his cabin Cabin pressure. pressure. And there's another little nuance here, which is, you know, like the rigor of small detail of how you should apply procedures. So in our aircraft, if we have a master caution, you should cancel the alarm and then you go about, okay, what's the master caution and, and dealing with it and doing that all very systematically. But the very first thing, you cancel it. Because as the way I understand it is then, if another failure occurs, the master caution will light up again and yep. you'll be alerted that there is another failure. Yep. So the CVR for this accident is only 30 minutes of the of the flight, so it doesn't go this far back. But there's a possibility that it, when they got the avionics cooling caution, if it wasn't cancelled properly, then 
when they got a caution for the mask, cabin masks, they wouldn't have seen it because it was, it was hiding behind the caution yeah, that was there. Yeah, 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 wow. Um, so just how, you know, small discipline of things that the aircraft designers built in, you have to follow. Otherwise you open up more and more holes in the cheese, if you like, yeah, yeah, yeah. for these accidents to get through. So he's got avionics calling, he thinks, and there is criticism in the accident report of the non-technical skills of the pilots there, which mm. is really difficult for me to, yeah. you know, criticise. Yeah, it's hard. We don't know when they became hypoxic, but there is that point, isn't there, where you think you've diagnosed a problem, but you've got this hairs on the back of your neck or this uncomfortable feeling that I've misdiagnosed this problem. And that should be a red flag to be like, let's go back to basics and... You know, is this an avionics calling thing? There's one alarm, but it's not coinciding with this. But meanwhile, what's going on in the cabin? Yeah, so the masks have dropped in the cabin. Cabin crew passengers all using their chemical generated oxygen masks. But obviously the aircraft's still climbing. So I don't know why the cabin crew wouldn't have approached the flight deck earlier. Yeah, I don't think it was one of their procedures. Probably not one of their procedures. But sadly, for those poor passengers their oxygen is going to run out in 15 minutes, which is obviously what happened. Then they start breathing just outside air, which is by now almost cruising altitude, probably 30 air. You know, they have seconds of useful consciousness and probably minutes of actual consciousness before everybody just passed out, basically. Because you've got this tragic situation. Imagine if it was in a, well, it is in lots of documentaries and they call it like the ghost plane and stuff. But just before it's really all over. You've got this tragedy of, if you looked behind the flight deck door, a cabin full of passengers, you've all promptly put on their oxygen mask and been told to sit down and put their oxygen mask on by the crew and they're breathing oxygen from this amazing chemical generated system. And on the other side of the flight deck door, you've got a total misdiagnosis of, of what's going on and pilots who quickly become hypoxic and then lose consciousness. Mm. So the pilots in the flight deck are unconscious. The aircraft's climbing at a really high rate was cleared to climb to its cruise altitude, unfortunately. Yeah. 37,000 feet, I think. And in the back, patiently waiting is the cabin crew and the passengers for the pilots to do something. So it reaches its cruise altitude and then the pilots are incapacitated. So there's a loss of comms situation with yeah. air traffic control. And air traffic, you know, loss of comms is like reasonably common. I've even had it in that part of the world. I've had you know a few loss of comms it's not always um you know some massive tragedy but the air traffic controllers don't follow the absolute correct procedure when the aircraft transits from the Nicosia airspace into Greek airspace you know the controllers are saying here's my blip and you're now in control of this radar blip on the screen it doesn't tell well tells them I'm having difficulty contacting them but doesn't initiate a loss of comms procedure handover which might have changed the situation, but merrily they climb up to 37,000 feet, level off and continue on their navigation towards towards Athens. And then the Greeks realise something's up. And so what do they do next? I think so that's the point at which they send the military fighter jets up to intercept them. Uh, I've never been intercepted, but like they get pretty close, I think, these fighter jets. Well, I'm sure I read in the report, they got so close that the the fighter pilot could see into the flight deck. I mean, that's incredible, travelling at like 500 miles an hour, how close he got. But he could see the pilot slumped at the controls through the flight deck. He could see all the cabin masks had deployed yeah. as well. Yeah. You know, they are, they love it. They can intercept like incredibly close and they are looking for hijack situations. So yeah, they're, yeah. they're going to be like looking really carefully. But yeah, as I understand it, you can see their eyes. Like yeah, that's yeah. how close they are. Yeah, yeah. So what's happening... I mean, basically, brain damage is setting in. They're so high. These guys have been unconscious yeah, for that long now. Essentially dead already, pretty much. Yeah. yeah, and the aircraft's flying along happily towards Athens. And it gets to Athens and then goes into the missed approach hold. Yeah. So it doesn't descend ever. It's yeah. at 37,000 feet, doing exactly what the MCP pilots put in, climbing to 37, yeah. stay in nav mode, and it just goes into the hold over um, Kia. Yeah. Do you know Kia? Kia hold, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think it's an island, is it, to the south of Athens yeah. with a VOR on it. And there it is. And the, you know, you've got this F-16 following the aircraft. Do you, do you remember what happens next? So I think then at some point, one of the cabin crew is actually still conscious. So one would assume he's been on therapeutic oxygen which lasts a lot longer 
he actually gains access to the flight deck, he eventually must realise something's wrong here. Like, you know, this has gone on too long and actually gets emergency access into the flight deck, finds the pilots slumped at the controls, tries to put their oxygen mask on to no avail. But by this time, time's running out because basically the fuel's running out. Yeah, so he takes the captain out of his seat. Yeah. And we don't know, but possibly applied oxygen to the captain yeah. out of his seat as well as probably the first officer as well. And eventually is seen by the F-16 pilot yeah. at the controls and he could see that it's cabin crew wearing a cabin crew vest. But this guy isn't just any cabin crew. No, didn't he have some sort of pilot's yeah. license? Yeah, this commercial pilot's license. Yeah, right, this CPL right. from the right. UK. Right. So this is great, right? But the next thing that happens, two minutes after he sits in that seat, the left engine flames out due to fuel starvation. And then four minutes later, the right engine. So dual engine failure and some cabin crew with CPL is at the controls. And probably this guy is hypoxic. Yeah, yeah. Because why he wasn't in the flight deck earlier, yeah. nobody's sure, but potentially he was hypoxic and managed to kind of convince himself to get on therapeutic and started to revive himself possibly. Yeah, possibly, so, yeah. It's hard to know exactly what happened. But he tried to make four mayday calls on the radio and, you know, what would he be able to do then if he, you know, say before before he ran out of fuel, you know, do you reckon he could land it? I think he'd, he'd have a better than even chance probably. If, if fuel was no issue, I think a fully serviceable with, with the radio. aircraft, with the radio, with some fighter jet help yeah and I think a, and what a, a story it would have been yeah it would God. be like the total opposite but he transmitted a mayday on the VHF1 frequency which was like Nicosia's you know yeah. from a few hundred miles back mm-hmm. so nobody heard it so I think he probably was hypoxic this gentleman his fiance was cabin crew and she was on board too now the F-16 pilot there's an interview with him which is makes it's difficult to watch because he he's very upset reliving this guy had to escort this aircraft as it ran out of fuel and uh, just descended towards the ground and totally helpless mm. i mean it's horrible and you can watch the head up display on the internet and you you don't really get to see anything but you can hear the distress in the F16 pilot's voice interestingly they the cabin crew that uh, was at the controls is a bit of a hero because it's proven that he disconnected the autopilot or used heading and turned away from um, Athens or yeah. uh, the built-up area. And as the aircraft like sadly descended towards some hills, he was making positive inputs to the controls the whole time, right yeah. up to Im- impact and looking like he was trying to sort of do a controlled crash. But yeah. the aircraft in a dual engine failure the 737 goes into like a manual backup mode. So the controls are extremely heavy. heavy yeah. This guy's hypoxic, you know, and yeah, it's... the aircraft crashed in such a way that it was totally destroyed apart from the tail section, which has the Helios guard of on the tail, which sort of stood out. Everything else was totally destroyed, destroyed on impact. Really sad and difficult accident that obviously captures a lot of people's attention and is plenty of documentaries, but so much was learned from it. So EASA mandated that cabin crew procedures have to be that if there is the cabin, any signs of decompression or the cabin oxygen system is activated and the masks fall down, the cabin crew have to go into the flight deck if they don't, if they're not sure that the flight crew are dealing with it, which obviously would have saved this. Boeing had to redesign, I think even retrofit some of their cabin um, altitude warning system so that there's less so there's no chance of confusion about what alarm was going off and did you know that in um, Sweden just a few years later taking off out of Stockholm out of Bremen there was an RJ Avro RJ jet that took off and part of their I think de-icing procedures were that you turn the packs off right Right. so these um, pilots took off with the packs off and the aircraft uh, never pressurized and so essentially a slow decompression as they climbed and again the cabin oxygen system activated independently and the mass came down and everyone put their oxygen masks on but this time 
thanks to the lessons learned here, mm. the cabin crew went into the flight deck. And do you know what they were doing? They were troubleshooting the exact same thing. They were troubleshooting avionics overheat and had no idea about the cabin pressurization problem because for some reason no alarm went off. But luckily, because the cabin crew came in and the flight crew probably looked behind them and um, got to see, you know, the oxygen masks and so on, they started emergency descent. And, you know, and and thankfully, like, however many lives were saved. Because of that, yeah. It's funny that in some of these accidents, you know, like the shell model, you know, the pilots have some information and the cabin crew and the cabin has other parts of information. The system actually had a complete picture of what was going on, but it didn't all arrive at the pilots in the Helios crash for them to say, you know, able to do anything about it. So, yeah, I mean, hypoxia, the first effects of, by the way, 1862, some heroes decided to take a balloon up to 29,000 feet right, and reported... Strange symptoms, including <laughs> loss of vision, loss of hearing and paralysis of arms. And somehow in all that, they were like, get the balloon down, you know, yeah, and came yeah, back yeah, down came to back tell, down. tell the story. So it was like 150 years ago, the first like experiments of hypoxia. Yeah. Um, so there's one thing to remember, which is that you've got oxygen available to you, put your mask on and then deal with the rest after. Yeah, the rest after. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Good. All right. Cheers. Bye.